Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Great to have you all back with us for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, We've got a show today that I've been looking forward to for a long time uh, because we're going to talk about the um, what it means that Amy Coney Barrett, Judge Barrett, is uh, in all probability likely to be by the middle of next week at the latest confirmed as uh, a member of the United States Supreme Court, a justice at on the Supreme Court taking the place of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And we want to talk about the impact that she may have on cases, some of which are important, very specifically here in Georgia, but of course across the country as well. Uh, Before we get to that and introducing the panel, let me uh, just say early voting continues in Georgia and the numbers continue to be overwhelming. Uh, There have now been uh, 1,912,000 votes cast in Georgia, either absentee mail-in ballots or in-person early voting. And we're still a week and a half before the end of early voting, which happens a week from Friday on October 30th. So it's an extraordinary expression of people's um, passion, I think, about voting in this cycle. Uh, all right, let's introduce uh, the panel and get started. Uh, Greg Bluestein is with us. He's uh, my Wednesday partner on most political rewinds. You know Greg is a political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Um, Greg, this is going to be the busiest 12, 13 days in, uh, in your year, that's for sure. Yes, it really will. And remember, we've also got another 90 after that because there will be at least one Senate runoff, maybe two. So I always have to remind folks, yeah. and I know you know it very well, Bill, but we're, we're only at the start of the busy, busy season. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's great to be that you are still able to carve out time uh, to be with us for this show, uh, Greg. Uh, we're also joined by uh, three panelists who've all done the show with some regularity now. Uh, and, and today, I'm really looking forward to what they have to say about Judge Barrett and her impact on American jurisprudence. Uh, we begin with Amy Steigerwald. Amy Steigerwald, of course, is a professor of political science at um, Georgia State University, but also uh, has a specialty in studying federal judiciary. Uh, Amy, we've never mentioned this, but we've mentioned at least one of your other books, but you also are the co-author of a book called The Puzzle of Unanimity, Consensus on the United States Supreme Court. So you've looked very carefully at uh, court balance, imbalance, uh, and and the notion of how the uh, uh, comportment of the justices affect decisions. Tell us a, just a little bit about that book. Uh, the short version of that book is we wanted to understand why it is the justices agree. People focus a lot on the cases where they disagree, but it turns out that in over a majority of the cases, every single term, all nine justices agree. There's no dissent. They issue a unanimous decision, and we argue that it's those cases which, as political scientists, this is kind of a uh, revolutionary and radical proposition, but it's because they're constrained by the law. There's only sort of a single legal answer, and they all go to it, and there's not a lot of room for the types of disagreements we focus on. Um, 
I'll also give a plug. Um, I guess my very first book, uh, which was actually based on my dissertation, is called Battle Over the Bench, Senators, Interest Groups, and Lower Court Confirmation Fights. So that's the other topic that I actually spend quite a lot of time studying. Oh, okay. Well, thank you for uh, sharing that part of it with us, uh, too. Uh, we're also joined by uh, Professor Fred Smith, Associate Professor in the Emory School uh, University, in the Emory University School of Law. Um, you, too, uh, uh, Fred, are a, a scholar on the federal judiciary. You teach on constitutional law. You, uh, I, I always like to tell people in 2019, you were named the law school's outstanding professor of the year. You clerked for Justice Sonia Sotomayor, so you have a pretty clear picture of how things unfold up there when those justices are behind closed doors. And um, I'm very glad you could be with us today, Fred. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here. We're also joined by Charles Cook. Um, Chuck Cook is uh, one of the best-known immigration attorneys, I always say in the Southeast, but in fact, Chuck... Uh, I didn't know until I looked this up. You now have been named one of the top five most highly regarded corporate immigration lawyers in the world by the international who's who of corporate immigration lawyers. Mike, are we going to have to start paying you more to be a, a panelist on this show? You, you might have to double my pay uh, to be on the show. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, you can pull some Thank of the people all the time. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. <laughs> Thanks for being here, Chuck. Uh, before we go to the courts, um, Greg, you have some breaking news for us. Yeah, Vice Presidential nominee Kamala Harris is visiting Atlanta on Friday to rally Georgians to the campaign as polls continue to show a really tight race uh, for president here in Georgia. A New York Times poll yesterday showed another deadlock, 45-45. So um, everyone, everyone from both campaigns believes the polls that show a close race. And this is yet another indication of that when, when you have the, the Democratic vice presidential nominee visiting Atlanta in the final, what, 10 days, two weeks. But by then it will be 10 or so days before the election. And you say that's Friday sometime, and we're not sure just where she'll be at, right? Yeah, she'll be in Atlanta. Uh, we're not sure exactly what time the stops or where the stops will be. But I expect there to be one, some sort of socially distanced rally um, uh, as the campaign is, uh, you know, kind of— they don't do uh, close-in events, <laughs> so there'll be a, some sort of socially distanced event and probably some other stops um, across Metro Atlanta. One of the other interesting aspects of what you're telling us now is that this means two debates in a row. In The, the day after the first uh, Trump-Biden debate, uh, I believe I'm correct, Vice President Pence uh, was in Georgia, um, and now we have the Democratic vice presidential candidate coming to Georgia the day after the second debate. And the first stop you make after big debates tells you something about the, ca the campaign's desire to need to win those states and uh, keep building energy for voters here. You're exactly right. I need to add that to the story <laughs> that I just wrote. But uh, okay. no, you're, you're, you're correct about that. And of course, it will be the, 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 the second and final presidential debate on Thursday night. Yeah, yeah, and we'll be talking a lot about that uh, tomorrow and Friday. Okay, let's talk about Amy Coney Barrett. Um, we know that this is an accelerated process. I mean, an incredibly accelerated process to the extent that tomorrow the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, will uh, presumably vote 
uh, to send her nomination to the full Senate. And Mitch McConnell's office has suggested it is conceivable that they are going to meet through the weekend so that they can confirm Barrett on as soon as next Monday. Now, we'll see if that schedule actually plays out, but it's an indication of how much in a hurry Republicans are to get her on the court. Um, first of all, let me ask that question. Um, Fred, what about this accelerated process? We've, it, it's been talked about a lot. It's certainly faster than almost any other nomination that's moved through the court, uh, through the, through the uh, Senate. Sure. In recent years, yes. Uh, but uh, Warren Berger was 17 days. Uh, Harry Blackman was 27 days. Uh, so there have been other short periods. Um, you know, in her particular instance, she was uh, confirmed to the Court of Appeals so recently um, that the vetting has all that typically uh, takes place for that process um, has all, had already taken place and transpired. Uh, and in terms of the concerns that Democrats are raising, you know, unlike some of the other nominations we've seen, Democrats aren't demanding more evidence. They're not demanding to enlarge the record. Um, and you know, the charge isn't so much about her as it is about um, the broader process itself. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that all uh, helps explain why this process uh, is particularly short. But of course, Amy, it's also uh, the the haste with which the Senate Republicans are moving is also uh, contrasted by Democrats to their refusal to uh, even even discuss Merrick Garland uh, when uh, President Obama nominated him to the court some nine months before the election. Yes, exactly. And so Fred is totally right that right if we look back sort of historically. Certainly, this isn't out of the norm. Um, I guess the difference is, is that if we compare it to more recent nominations, um, all of the current justices, uh, their average time to nomination was 78 days. And what we've normally seen is about two months between nomination, the confirmation. And I think one of the issues that's also going on is that the this is one of the first ones we've really seen where, in part, the Democrats are also facing kind of the recognition that there's not a lot of, that they can do to really slow down or stop the process. Um, I do think we're probably going to hear, so last night, her answers to follow-up questions from the Senate Judiciary Committee members were released. Um, I would not be surprised if we hear a lot from the Judiciary Committee Democrats about that, because there were, again, um, a number of things that she sort of refused to answer. Um, there's a lot of other issues that have come out, but again, they don't have a lot of power to really be able to slow down the process. And one of the things that happened last week is that when they did try to use one of their powers, which was to deny a quorum in the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee Chair Graham said, I'm going to hold the vote anyways. So in part, there is also that there are these norms and the rules. But the thing is, is that there's also the question of whether or not the majority, in fact, wants to even kind of uh, validate those rules. So part of what we have is kind of this there's not a lot that Democrats can really do, and I think some of it is that we would see sort of broader concerns maybe about certain issues, and I imagine it'll keep coming up, especially about um, health care, the suggestion that Medicare might be unconstitutional. That was kind of um, a big shock in some other places. I, I, Chuck, I'm going to throw a surprise at everybody uh, because the Associated Press has just moved a story 
that isn't going to change the trajectory of whether she wins nomination or not, I assume, but it could add to uh, some of the uh, uh, controversy over how quickly they're moving. Here's the lead to the AP story. Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett served for nearly three years on the board of a private Christian school that effectively barred admission to children of same-sex parents and made it plain that openly gay and lesbian teachers weren't welcome in the classroom. Chuck? Well, I don't think anybody is surprised by that. That is entirely in line with her life philosophy. Um, but it doesn't necessarily make her un, uh, um, uh, un, unable to serve on the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, I don't see that changing right. the nomination process in any way whatsoever. But it will make her suspect in people's eyes going forward, particularly if she were to rule on uh, the issue of same-sex marriage again, if that was considered by the court, which really goes to the issue that she brought up in her, in her own writing and in her, uh, uh, her testimony uh, at her confirmation hearing, and that is about the doctrine of stare decisis, which is basically the court, look, we're not going to disturb a ruling if it was, you know, for, for no reason at all because we don't like it. Uh, that's that respect issue. She doesn't agree with that. And so uh, this type of fact that's now come to light, um, which apparently she uh, must not have disclosed in her, in her applications, uh, uh, is certainly going to make her, her suspect going forward. All right. So let's back up a little. And for lay people like me, let's explain some of the terms that we heard during the uh, <laughs> uh, hearings. And that, and that maybe will help our listeners Certainly me, maybe Bluestein as well, uh, understand a little more about her philosophy. So, Fred, let me start with this. We have been told over and over again that Amy Coney Barrett is an originalist uh, in the style of her mentor, uh, Justice Scalia. Um, in the most basic terms, what does it mean to be an originalist uh, anyway, Fred? Sure. So the term has actually um, changed meaning uh, over the past uh, 40 years or so. Uh, so I'll begin with what it started out as meaning in the days of, say, Robert Bork uh, in the early uh, 1980s um, and, and throughout. Um, then it meant original intent. Uh, so the question was, uh, you know, what did James Madison think? What did Alexander Hamilton think uh, when they were drafting this? Um, and, uh, and, and even perhaps uh, you know, in, 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 its, um, in some forms, we might even ask, you know, how would they have uh, approached specific types of cases if they found themselves doing so? That, that type of originalism met a lot of opposition um, methodologically and, uh, and, and just in terms of whether or not it made sense to it, – it ran into what people call the dead hand problem. Um, and what has come to happen instead is that originalism now really tends to mean what would an ordinary member of the public understood the words to have mean. And that's right. So it's more of a kind of a you know, small d democratic type of, of argument uh, where this is the document that was ratified. Uh, what did the, uh, those words uh, typically mean at that time? So what, what was the pact um, that, uh, that the body politic understood itself to be uh, entering? Um, and, you know, at this point, you know, there, there are these moments where, people, you know, it's Justice Kagan who said, we're all originalists now. Um, and, 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 and I think part of that uh, is that originalism has shifted meaning to one that really sort of reflects 
what was going on anyway. Um, that, is, that's, that's, that's a, that is a pretty common way um, when you don't have a lot of precedent um, of trying to, at first, you know, on, on first impression, figure out what words mean. Now, at this point in our republic's history, we have a lot of precedent. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, one, one question for that, that different originalists are going to have different views about um, is how bound to those precedents are they when they conflict with originalism. But that's not a problem that's unique to originalists. That's true uh, regardless of what your constitutional um, approach is. Yeah, and we're going to be talking about uh, what is basically stare decisis, which Chuck has already mentioned in just a few minutes. But, Greg, um, one of the things that we heard in the hearings last week when, uh, when some of the senators, primarily the Democrats, talked about her being an originalist, um, is that it creates this situation where the founders never had to deal with issues like gay marriage, civil rights for uh, uh, blacks. Blacks were enslaved at the time they were drawing up the Constitution. There was nothing about uh, civil rights for or, or protections for undocumented immigrants. Our times have changed so dramatically, and there were Democrats who expressed great concerns from a political point of view about um, how you uh, uh, contend with some of those very important contemporary issues with that kind of philosophy. Yeah, they talked about a clash of whether or not the, the, the Constitution is a living document or not, whether or not it, it has the capacity to sort of evolve along with the times, or whether or not we should be um, trying to sort of almost divining uh, what the founders might have meant um, hundreds of years ago with their terms. And you kind of saw that clash on full display through those hours of hearings um, as, as many, many conservatives um, took the originalist point of view that that I think even a few decades ago many of them would not have you know would, would not have been sort of in that sort of mainstream. Is that is that correct, legal scholars? Yes, and I think <laughs> it also really goes into this question of what does that then mean for the Constitution. So originalists right want to look back at what was the thought at the time it was written, whether we're talking about the Constitution or a statute. And so their response to the critique of, well, what if the world has changed is then the proper response is to amend the Constitution. It's not for judges to update the understanding. It's to either amend the Constitution or change the law, right? An alternative idea is more of a straight textualist reading, right, and that you potentially interpret the words, but maybe even give them sort of how we think of them today. So in some level, a good example of that was actually uh, Justice Gorsuch's opinion in Bostock, where he interpreted uh, whether or not Title VII of the Civil Rights Act that talks about sex discrimination also applied to discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. And so he is very much a textualist, and he, but also a textualist who interprets the words as they're seen today, and he said this is what the words apply to, right? An originalist might say, and some of the other justices did, right, when they wrote that portion of the Civil Rights Act, that was definitely not what they had in mind, right? They were only talking about gender and also, if you look at the legislative history, we know that they put that in actually as a way to try to derail the Civil Rights Act, and it <laughs> failed. Um, but that's actually why it was originally added. And so part of this is this question of what do we do with that and what should be the role of judges in trying to interpret words that also do change over time, right? The Constitution was written all the way back in the late 1700s. And so 
the Fourth Amendment is kind of a good example of this, of where trying to understand, and as we've seen the court over time through its jurisprudence, really kind of wrestle with what do, where does it go to, what do we do with as advancing technology has sort of changed our idea of what it means to search a place or to seize something, especially with communications and stuff like that. So, okay, thank you. Chuck, again, I want to take a couple of these broad concepts and then apply them in a very practical way to some of the issues that we're concerned about here in Georgia as, as Georgians. Um, stare decisis. This, it, I want to make sure I'm right about this. Certainly that was a big que- uh, issue in the uh, questioning of, of Barrett during the Judiciary Committee hearings. I, I, am I correct in saying that that relates to precedent, whether past cases decided by the Supreme Court should, in fact, be the ruling uh, 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 factor in how the court looks at an ongoing case, uh, which is what stare decisis suggests you should do. Barrett says that, uh, it, and it has to do with precedent, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. Well, what stare decisis simply means, look, the court has made a decision about what a rule or a statute of the Constitution means. We're going to go with that from now on. Uh, and we're not going to disturb that, period. Now, that's not necessarily true because the court has, over the years, changed decisions. Plessy versus Ferguson uh, was clearly a terrible decision, uh, and it took them a very long time to fix that until Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, this, 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 this whole idea of starting to Plessy was up, separate but equal. Equal but equal. And... This came up in the context of Roe versus Wade you, uh, or other Brown versus Board of Education, and whether you consider some decisions so, quote, sacred that you would never look at them. Uh, some have deemed these super precedents, um, that you would never touch them. Um, and, of course, uh, uh, Judge Barrett said, I don't know what that really means, but, uh, you know, there are, there are at least Brown versus Board of Education I wouldn't touch. But she talked about Roe versus Wade not being within that context. And, I, and she, the reason they asked her about this is she wrote a very detailed law review article at the very beginning of her time as a law professor about stare decisis and her disagreement with the, with the fact that the courts had to, in the future, obey every decision that they made earlier. And this whole idea of religion really comes into focus, um, and I mentioned this to you before, Bill, uh, if, you, if all you know about Alexander Hamilton is what you saw in the play— uh, then you are missing out on what the Founding Fathers thought about the Constitution. You read Chernow's book and you realize they didn't think anything about the Constitution. They literally changed their minds to fit their circumstances. Uh, And Hamilton is a key example of this, who wrote the vast majority of the Federalist Papers, giving the thoughts of the Founding Fathers on the Constitution. He routinely, after that, wrote arguments, briefs in the Supreme Court, that contradicted what he wrote in the Federalist paper. So the idea of originalism in this context is really quite entertaining. So stare decisis and, and Barrett's viewpoint of it is going to play a major role in a case that will have enormous impact here in Georgia, Greg Bluestein. Uh, we now know that the legislature has passed a statute that virtually outlaws abortion in the state. It is one of a number of states who have cases. It's been stayed for the time being. Uh, and, uh, and the court will eventually hear maybe Georgia, maybe Louisiana. We don't know. But 
uh, but let's be clear about something, Amy. As, as um, Chuck just pointed out, in the hearings, uh, Barrett was willing to say, yes, Brown v. Board of Education, integration of public schools, w- is a super precedent. But asked mm-hmm. whether Roe v. Wade is or not, she, def- she demurred. She didn't want to get into that in any way. And, and she did, has written a couple of articles for law reviews in which she essentially undermines the concept of uh, stare decisis, which suggests she may be on the conservative side of a ca- whatever case comes before the, the uh, court on uh, Roe. I think that's accurate. So she not only was willing to say that Roe v. Wade was a super precedent, whatever that might mean, um, in the same way that lots of other uh, recent nominees have. But she also cast doubt on Griswold v. Connecticut, which is a case about oral contraceptives that really underlies the legal reasoning that we see in Roe. And she put that within the same category. Um, I would say that maybe the most striking part of her previous articles about stare decisis is that she really frames it in the sense of past precedents being wrong, of error correction, and that which, and the, the issue, of course, would be, or what are the bounds of that, right? Who decides whether or not the precedent is incorrect? What does it mean for the precedent to be incorrect? Uh, where, where does that go to is, and this is sort of like the broader concept that a lot of people get into, of part of what stare decisis is about is stability, consistency, right? The idea that the uh, judgments of the courts should not change simply because the membership of the court has changed. And that really gets into that broader idea of what do we mean by error correction as opposed to uh, something being, for example, unworkable or not practical. Um, Fred, uh, uh, pro-choice groups are very concerned about Barrett and how she might join the conservative, um, become part of the conservative majority of the court, which would take up Roe. But we should be cautious about that because, number one, we really don't know that the Supreme Court is ready to take up Roe and where they may go. I do think it's important to be cautious before we make assumptions. Am I right about that? Sure. Um, There's good reason for caution uh, in the sense that it's unclear whether, say, the chief uh, is willing to go this particular route. Um, you know, when they had a 5-4 majority, that is, they meaning people who are appointed by Republican uh, presidents, um, the chief was open, at least initially, to an approach where, you know, when it came to things like admitting privileges provisions and things that might have meant, as a practical matter, that there were no abortion clinics or that there were only two or one uh, in various states, um, that that he was actually comfortable um, with ruling those to be constitutional without actually overturning Roe versus Wade, right? So that was the, the approach that at least he seemed to be the most comfortable with. Um, so in, in, in essence, there wouldn't really be uh, a, a, a woman, especially a poor woman who couldn't travel across state lines, wouldn't have the ability to have an abortion in that state. Um, uh, but nonetheless, Roe versus Wade would remain precedent. Um, you know, with with a six to three majority, they don't. It's not necessary uh, to have the chief, and so the question starts to become: Well, where is Kavanaugh on this, and where is Gorsuch on this? And we don't know. For for Judge Barrett, 
Um, we do have a fairly strong sense of how she thinks of Roe as a precedent, um, not so much from the confirmation hearings, but from her writings as a law professor. Uh, so it, during the confirmation hearings, you know, her answers to questions about Roe and abortion centered on the fact that there are active cases in the courts of appeals. Um, her writing is related to that, but it's a bit different. Uh, so the way that she uh, has described the super precedent in her 2013 opinion, and she, and she actually used Roe and Casey as examples, um, uh, is to say it's whether or not they have broad public agreement and consensus. It's about whether or not the people themselves uh, have reached a point of consensus such that if someone were to raise an argument challenging them, they'd be laughed out of court. Uh, and she says that um, that even though in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, uh, the Supreme Court upheld Roe versus Wade, that didn't convert it into a super precedent because there's still so much disagreement. She, she uses that as a concrete example to make a point. So uh, it's fairly clear that uh, I don't. You know, it's fairly clear that she does not view Roe as a super precedent. Uh, Greg, before we get to a break, uh, real quickly, we should put this back in a political context, since this is, after all, political rewind. There's no question that Republicans thought that her nomination uh, was going to have the potential to really uh, refocus the Republican efforts to win uh, Senate seats, seats in Congress and for Trump to help himself in reelection. We don't know what's going to happen once she's uh, clears the Judiciary Committee and goes to the floor of the Senate, maybe that'll be an important moment for Republicans. But so far, uh, this has not moved the needle the way Republicans hoped it would. And part of it is because President Trump keeps stepping all over this message, yes? Yeah, I mean, it, it hasn't changed the polls dramatically in Georgia and battleground states or across the nation. And I think part of it, too, is shortly afterwards, President Trump Uh, contracted the coronavirus. So that shifted the entire presidential race's attention back onto a pandemic that he did not want to discuss. Um, So I think that changed um, that that changed at least some of the Republican messaging. Although, you know, two weeks left confirmation, uh, the the votes coming up. So that could shift a little bit back towards that. But two million people in Georgia have already voted. Yeah. All right. Let's do this. Uh, I'm running late to get our first break of the show out of the way. We'll do that and come back and talk more with this great panel on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. The AJC's Greg Bluestein, Professor Fred Smith, Professor Amy Steigerwald, and super immigration lawyer... Charles Cook, Chuck Cook, join us to, uh, to talk about the Supreme Court today. Uh, Chuck, let me start with you and then get everybody involved in this. Um, of course, one of the other important issues that we're looking at in terms of what happens when a Justice Barrett takes her seat on the court, which is now expected to happen before Election Day, is that on November 10th, the court will hear arguments on the Affordable Care Act um, and on, on pre-existing uh, conditions. And um, we should say that uh, Georgia's Attorney General Chris Carr is one of, I think, 20, 21, something like that, Republican Mm -hmm. attorneys general 
who are involved in that case, who want the case thrown out. Uh, one of the issues that the uh, Judiciary Committee talked about was severability. If you throw out one aspect of the law, does the rest of it go out or not? And Barrett's uh, position on that w may, in a six to three case, have a huge impact on whether the entire ACA is thrown out, right? Yeah, we could easily see the ACA end uh, before the end of the year, not before the election, however, when people can decide what they want to do with it. Um, it is, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the Republicans spent a lot of time poo-pooing the idea that the court is going to overturn uh, the ACA and throw it out based upon separability. Yet I ask you, if that's the case, why did the Supreme Court take it? Uh, they took the case because at least four justices were interested in overturning the ACA based upon that. And I dare say four of those justices are still there. Um, and so uh, looking at uh, Judge Barrett's prior record and her writings, I would suggest that uh, severability, in fact, uh, will be a key to overturning the ACA. Now, that said, that's an easy fix for Congress. You know, uh, that's a fix that Congress could make, uh, uh, depending on its makeup, on January 21st. So it, it might be a, a temporary set-aside if the court even rules on it uh, before the new Congress is seated in January. Um, Fred, severability would mean that they can throw out the one section of the law that is uh, under question and the rest of the law would stand. But there are, But there's controversy over whether you can do that, right? Sure. So I was a little surprised um, from when I watched the confirmation hearings when Judge Barrett said that severability was not an issue in the initial Affordable Care Act litigation, um, because I, I definitely see that quite differently. There were four votes uh, to overturn the entire Affordable Care Act. Um, and, uh, and, and the basis was that because, uh, in their view, the individual mandate was unconstitutional and the Medicaid expansion was unconstitutional, um, then as a result, uh, the entire law needed to fall. And there was, and it, it was, this wasn't a side issue. This was front and center during the, uh, the oral argument itself. At one point, uh, I believe it was Justice Scalia uh, who said, there's so much going on in this law for us to try to figure out what we keep and what we get rid of, whether this clause or that clause. He says, he, he jokingly said, that would be cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, and, uh, and so, uh, so it was, you know, this, this, was, this was heavily litigated. Uh, yeah, um, and, and, and so certainly her views uh, about, um, uh, about severability are important. It, it's, it would not be, if indeed uh, they conclude that the individual mandate is now unconstitutional, um, it would not be surprising at all to me uh, if, uh, even for just practical reasons, they struck down the entire rest of the law. And that's what a district. Yeah, I'm sorry. Let me. Judge, by the way, did. I apologize for interrupting you. I, I, it is the individual mandate portion, not the uh, pre-existing conditions that we're talking about. Amy, you want to weigh in? Um, I agree with Fred. I mean, I think that though you're actually both right. So, what is at issue is the individual mandate. The fact that in the previous case, the court ruled that it was a tax not a penalty. Now the question is, because it got zeroed out, does that, in fact, sh shift it back to being a tax? But the argument is also that other parts of the law, and in particular, the protection against 
treating differently those who have pre-existing conditions is so closely intertwined with the notion of the individual mandate that if one falls, the rest must follow, right? And so that's sort of where we're getting in, and it really gets us into this debate. So we're trying to kind of read the tea leaves here on how people might sort of view it and where it goes. So um, I completely agree with Fred's view, right, of the original case. What we do have is that Judge Barrett, like at least during her confirmation hearing, made the comment that uh, because judges don't want to intervene too much in the decisions of legislatures, that they generally will uh, that severability is sort of the more conservative option, sort of little c in that sense. Um, a lot of people have also pointed to a recent decision that Justice Kavanaugh wrote, where he it seemed to people went kind of out of his way to explain why, in fact, portions should be severed from a law as opposed to striking the whole thing down. And so, but the thing is, is we don't know, because part of it has to do, again, with whether or not they think they can sever it, or if, again, all these pieces are so intertwined that trying to separate out a few is almost impossible. And I guess the other part of that would be that people don't realize is that even if they sever, again, the question becomes, is it just the individual mandate, or are there other parts of the the law that they say are which are attached to it, like the pre-existing condition provision. So let's be clear. They will hear that case on November 10th, but they won't. But of course, like all Supreme Court cases, we will know probably in June what the outcome of the uh, the hearing <laughs> yeah. is. Uh, Greg, let's talk about another issue that came up in the uh, hearings that very important uh, to consider. Uh, President Trump has made it clear that one of the reasons he wants to accelerate the uh, confirmation of Judge Barrett is uh, he thinks she needs to be sitting on the Supreme Court to deal with the election challenges that very well may come after November 3rd. And clearly, this has concerned a great many people, uh, Democrats especially, but, but I think beyond Democrats, some who worry about a Supreme Court that may weigh in politically, which we certainly saw happen in 2000, no question, in uh, uh, Bush v. Gore. Um, and, and, and Greg, that it, it is a big political uh, question mark right now. It is. And, and already we're seeing some of the ramifications of that um, from a Supreme Court ruling, uh, not even a ruling, it let stand, well, it was a ruling, but it let stand a ruling by Pennsylvania's highest court um, earlier this week, there was a, a result of a 4-4 deadlock um, between the uh, between the sitting justices um, that allows elections officials to count some mailed ballots received up to three days after election day. Um, and so to prevent these sorts of deadlocks, these 4-4 ties, um, President Trump wants uh, the, that ninth justice on the bench. And it's very concerning to some Democrats who are worried uh, that, that that justice, that the Justice uh, Barrett could could rule in favor of Republicans on those election issues. So, Chuck, that 4-4 split with Justice yeah. Chief Justice Roberts weighing in with the with the, the, the more liberal justices is a perfect example of what uh, we're talking about with the balance of the court that Barrett could uh, 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 affect here. Um, and, and she told the Judiciary Committee she'd have to study whether or not she would have to recuse herself in election cases that might come before the court? You know, recusal rules do not apply to justices of the Supreme Court uh, that would normally apply to every other justice. Um, So 
she could, and I, it surprised me that she 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 wouldn't have said that. And then I realized, maybe now I know why she didn't want to say that because most people don't know, um, and that's why you get some justices sitting on cases they probably shouldn't be sitting on. Uh, but uh, if she does the right thing, I think she'd have to recuse herself. But I I think there is zero probability of that happening. She will sit on whatever case ends up in the Supreme Court, if any at all, uh, uh, that relate to this election. Um, but she's, if she's going to sit in on the ACA case. Uh, she's got some reading to do uh, in the next couple of weeks. Well, Fred, we don't have any reason to think she's not going to sit on the ACA case, uh, do we? No, we don't. Um, you know, so sometimes there'll be instances where a circuit court judge uh, has uh, has themselves or their or their circuit has ruled on an issue, uh, and and that can keep them from ruling on issues for a really very long time. And that was certainly the case with uh, Justice Sotomayor. Uh, it's sometimes been the case with Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, but to my knowledge, um, there's no ACA-related case that she's been involved in that would disqualify her. All right, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. And when we come back, more on the courts. But I want to take up a larger question about um, our democratic institutions and uh, whether or not they continue to serve the purpose that our founders had in mind when they were put in place. I'll explain what that means after this break. So if you listen to Political Rewind regularly, uh, you know that uh, I make uh, mistakes every now and then uh, as part of what comes with being on the air live with no script five hours a week. Yesterday, I had some of you scratching your heads and you contacted me to tell me this when I point, talked about it in a story we were talking about uh, Martha's Vineyard as a uh, center of gay social activity. And of course, uh, you all pointed out to me, what the heck are you talking about? Uh, I was thinking Cape Cod. What I had in my head was Provincetown. What came out of my mouth was Martha's Vineyard. And so all of you who corrected me on that, uh, I just wanted to say you were right. You caught me again. Uh, we're joined today by Greg Bluestein, Fred Smith, Amy Steigerwald, and Charles Cook uh, for a conversation about the Constitution, about Amy Coney Barrett. And I, I know this could get us into the weeds, but I want to ask a question about some of our institutions, three of them particularly, to, to just talk about whether they no longer serve the purposes that the Founding Fathers may have had for them. So the most perfect example of that, I think, Amy, is uh, the Electoral College. I mean, we know that initially the founders had good intentions with the Electoral College, thinking it would be a more democratic way to elect a president. But we have learned since in the last few presidential elections that the Electoral College actually thwarts the will of a majority of voters who vote for a president or the popular vote who does not end up in the White House, President Trump being the most recent example. That's one example of that. Um, the Supreme Court really, in many ways, is another, it strikes me, uh, because especially as it becomes more politicized, uh, their power to overturn uh, what Congress has set in law uh, is, is no longer part of a d democratic uh, process. Uh, and then I would say the third is the U.S. Senate. But give me, give me your thoughts on this. I want to get all of you in the picture on this. I think there's definitely something to that.
that. I mean, from the very beginning, if we start with the Supreme Court, there were concerns about whether or not it was going to be a counter-majoritarian institution. It is the one that did not have any sort of link to the voters. Uh, the justices were given life tenure. Um, and so at least in the 1950s, uh, Robert Dole, who is a political theorist and American political scientist, argued that the court was actually not that disconnected from the broader public, in part because what we saw at the time was that on average, a new justice was seated on the court approximately every two years. And so what it meant was that the court sort of would shift with how sort of the public, and it might be a little bit slower, but it was following it. Um, since he wrote that article, we've instead had much larger spans of time. Uh, there was a 12-year period, for example, where there was no turnover on the court at all. Um, we've also seen, if we bring it back to Merrick Garland, an instance where uh, the process didn't even happen, right, when that's the first time that we've seen that, right? There was no vote. There was no hearing. And so that does start to shift it a little bit, especially as, and I think what's important in this is also understanding how many times Congress itself has delegated the power to make a lot of these decisions to the courts, that they've basically punted. They are not able to come to a decision about something, so they write the law intentionally, sort of vaguely, they leave a lot to be defined, and then that means the courts at some point have to fill in the gap. Um, when it comes to the Senate and the Electoral College, the issue is that they actually really weren't written to be more democratic. They, there's a lot of uh, historical record that suggests that it was about protecting um, the power of slave states in particular. And also remember that one of the reasons, right, the original Senate and the original sort of design of the Electoral College were not about giving the people a vote in all of this. It was, in fact, about ensuring that the kind of will of the broad masses would be left out of it. That's why the Senate, remember, was actually originally chosen by the uh, state legislators and things like that. So I think we've got to sort of be clear that the the original design of a lot of these things was actually not about trying to All kind right. of enfranchise a lot of people. Uh, Chuck, I want to get you and Fred in on this, too, because, I mean, this is, to me, more important than ever as we talk about whether the country has become an autocracy, whether we are not the kind of democratic republic we had meant to be. Am I talking uh, just out of my hat on this? I don't think you are. I, I think this is an issue and a discussion that we absolutely have to have at this point. Uh, this election, of course, uh, will go down to the wire, uh, depending on what states. Uh, and the idea that, um, for example, in the Senate, that uh, one senator, two senators represent a state of 800,000 people and two other senators represent a state of 45 million people and their votes count the same seems to be antiquated. Uh, just because our amazing founding fathers got it relatively right 240 years ago doesn't mean it's necessarily perfect today. And again, this goes to changing the Constitution, going through the amendment process. They already amended the electoral process once, college process once. Um, but when you, when you read books like Hamilton, you realize they didn't think very much of the common man. That's why the Senate exists. Uh, they thought the common man were idiots. Uh, I don't think we have that same feeling today. So, again, uh, we have the ability to change things, and maybe we should. 
Fred, I approach this with you with the most trepidation because I think you are uh, you're somebody whose opinion. I mean, everybody's opinion on this matters. But I I think of you as kind of a really strict uh, thinker about the Constitution. Well, you know, so, well, to to that point, I'll note that there's actually one part of the Constitution at this point that's unamendable, according to Article 5, and it's equal suffrage for the Senate, for for each state in the Senate. So so Article 5 carves that out. So so every state could have three senators. You could change the Constitution to say that. Um, But under this particular document, uh, every state has to have an equal number of senators, and that's an unamendable part of of, of the document. Um, you know, broadly, it's, I mean, a lot of these points that have been raised, uh, you know, Sandy Levinson uh, wrote a book, The Undemocratic uh, Constitution. Um, you know, a lot of these points have been raised. I'll say from a judicial perspective, it is important, I think, for judges and justices to, to remember that they are unelected, to remember that they have kind of limited uh, political capital, limited moral capital. Uh, they don't have the power of the purse. They don't have the power of the sword. Alexander Hamilton reminded of this in Federalist Paper uh, 78. Um, I think from a, uh, from a, in terms of messaging, the right has done a remarkable job uh, of sort of making it seem that it's only one side that is overturning laws based on a thin textual basis. Uh, you know, I mean, in the area of immunity, um, which has been in the news a lot uh, in the in the policing context, um, there's a doctrine called sovereign immunity, where Justice Scalia said about the text of the Constitution, the Eleventh Amendment stands not for what it says, but for the broad presuppositions that it represents that the states entered the union with their sovereignty intact. Um, and and more broadly, uh, when we think about uh, the invalidation of Section Five of the Voting Rights Act. And when we think about the undoing of the McCain-Feingold Act um, in the Citizens United case, when we think about the undoing of local government's attempts uh, to voluntarily integrate their schools and parents involved, it's, it's not a one-sided story of intervention by any means. Uh, and I think that all judges and all justices have an obligation to think about their limited role. No, but it is an unwinding of uh, actions that the Congress has taken, uh, perhaps with the best intentions, and the court has been able to seize, seize them and do with them what they will. And I think you are, your list of cases is a great example of that. We're just about out of time. Greg Bluestein, um, where are you heading today? I know you've got to be back out on the campaign trail. Yeah, I'm seeing Senator, uh, sorry, I'm seeing Reverend Warnock. Um, at a, he's going to cast his ballot and have a little press event. I'm going to go try to catch Congressman Collins later on today, and then tomorrow brings a whole new host of events. Greg Bluestein, a warrior. You know, Greg, you just remind me how glad I am I've reached a stage in my life and career <laughs> where I kind of sit in my home studio and you all go out and report the stories. Thank you for that, Greg Bluestein. Glad to be here. Uh, Fred Smith. Fred Smith, Amy Steigerwald, Chuck Cook, thank you for a really fascinating conversation today. I learned a lot, and I hope our listeners did, too. We're back, of course, again with a new show tomorrow. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, Between now and then, please take care, stay healthy, wear a mask, and go get a flu shot. See you all tomorrow.